0: Good morning. Today's passage is Acts 1, through 1-11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles He had chosen. After His suffering, He presented Himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that He was alive. He appeared to them over a portal a period of forty days, and spoke of the, about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going
1: What is your mission in life? I, I think most people, many people struggle to answer that question. I, a lot of us, especially the last couple of years, we're just looking to survive to the next day. I don't know if I'm alone in that. You just wanna keep the train on the tracks so the train doesn't come off, and that's our mission. Uh, that's not our mission. Uh, we were made for so much more. We were made for mission, and when we live a life on mission, we live a life truly lived, but most of us don't. Most of us kind of meander through life to use uh, Thoreau's uh, language. We live lives of quiet desperation. What is your mission when you get out of bed in the morning? What, what, are, you, what are you living for? How do you know if you're succeeding? How do you, when you go to bed at night, how do you know, yes, that's a win. I did it. Thanks be to God. God. Most companies, I'm sure you're aware, have mission statements. Many of you work for an organization or company, and I would bet that that company has, has a mission statement. I, uh, I did a little research and got a few famous ones. Let's see I'm not going to tell you what they are. Um, I'm going to read a few, and let's see you, don't, you can shout about, it, I guess if you want, but like you know talk amongst yourselves, see if you can figure out what this mission statement is. Our vision is to be Earth's most customer-centric company to build a place where people can come to find and discover anything they might want to buy online. Any ideas? Yeah, yeah, you guys are smart, smart crew. Uh, To organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Google. Yeah. Uh, To give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. Twitter. Twitter. Uh, to be our customer's favorite place and way to eat and drink, that would be McDonald's. And if you agree with that, then, wow, I don't know what to tell you. You're far too easily, please, I don't want to hate on McDonald's, but there's better burgers in Portland, trust me. This is one of my favorite mission statements I found, uh, to, to make today delicious. And that would be Craft. My girls love craft and macaroni and cheese. If you had a mission statement, if you're writing one for your life, and I've, I've been in conferences and places like that where they had you do this, what would it be? Why are we alive? Why are our hearts beating? Why did God create us? We were made for mission. I'm thoroughly convinced, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. We launched a new series today uh, called On Mission, A Study of Acts. If you remember, if you've been part of New Hope, at the beginning of this year, that seems like a lifetime ago in some ways. Uh, we did a series on Acts, the go- or, or on Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And there's four Gospels, four eyewitness accounts, of the life of Jesus. And so Luke writes one to this person named Theophilus, probably a Gentile, we don't know much about this person, and explaining uh, what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. And and we went through that, and we called it the Great Reversal, if you remember. And that's one of the key themes. Each Gospel kind of has its own thing it leans into. And Luke's leaning into this idea that Jesus turns everything inside out and upside down. That when we collide with Jesus and anyone collides with Jesus, things change. And that's a crucial theme throughout Luke. Well, Luke wrote a subsequent volume called uh, Acts of the Apostles about the birth and the growth of the church to the same person, Theophilus. If you were in the early church, they were probably coupled together. You probably thought of them as like letter to Theophilus 1 and letter to Theophilus 2. If you grew up in church, we now call it Luke and Acts. But they're really kind of one unit. So as we were were pondering and praying, what do we do this fall for a series? I thought, man, let's let's dig back. I was like captivated by Luke and his gospel and and let's get back into it because he'll carry some of these same themes of the Great Reversal. Additionally, I don't know about you. I mean, I do this professionally, so I probably think about it far more than you do. But I've been troubled and bothered and by the church, by the American church over the last couple of years, how the church has shown up, what are we doing, how are we dropping balls, where are we doing well, I think a lot about the question, what does it look like to be a faithful church in America in 2022, I don't know, I don't completely know the answer to that, I'm praying and we're trying to figure out who we are as a community here to be faithful to our king, and I think Acts can inform that. I think as we get in and see things that they did right and things they did wrong, it's literally about how the Spirit of God came in and built the church from the ground up. So I think we'll have a lot to learn. So we're going to dive into Acts for probably a good long time. We have a thing around here we call the Big Read, and these are books several times a year that we encourage all of you to read. And so our Big Read for this series is a little commentary, and don't be scared by that word. Uh, by my professor, many of you know I'm doing my doctorate work under Dr. Scott McKnight. He's a New Testament scholar and historian. He's a great dude. And he signed a contract as Zondervan, I can't figure who the publisher is, to write a commentary for everyday people. So you don't need to have theological training on every book of the New Testament. So I think he's four books in, and he wrote one on Acts. And I started reading it this summer kind of for my devotions and just really loved it. I thought he's done a really excellent job. So that's our big read. We sold a lot of copies last week. I'm not sure how many are left. We'll reorder some, but he cut us a deal with his publisher, so you're not going to find it cheaper. It's out there. Really want to encourage you to get it. It will supplement what we're doing here. We're not going to be able to hit every passage in Acts, but he does. And he's got the scripture in there and just a little commentary and some questions you can use in your life group, for your personal study, with friends, with family. I think you'll really... uh, I think you'll really grow from it as an apprentice of Jesus. So check that out, that's on, that's on uh, sale out in the lobby. So let's dive in. Uh, we, we heard Anna read the opening passage. So if you have your Bibles, or you can get them up on your phone, do that we'll have some scriptures pop up but i think there's something powerful about having it in front of you you can actually bring your bible to church i know that's a novel idea in this day and age Uh, but we're going to be each week looking at a different section of acts so this is our passage today is acts uh we'll look at kind of one through 14 Anna read one through 11 so i want to walk through it if you're new to new hope this is kind of how we do our sermons we we walk through the text i'll make some comments that may not have jumped off at the page initially when you read them and then we'll, we'll, at the end of the message, I, in my notes, if you saw my notes, it says, "So what?" Question mark. That's what it says. "So what? You know, we learned this knowledge, but so what? What are we going to do with it? What does this mean to our lives today? So I have a couple thoughts for you under the "So what section. So let's dive in. So we'll start in verse one and just kind of walk through it. You'll, as you're looking down there, Luke tells Theophilus. He reminds him in volume one, letter one, that he has already written this gospel. And the gospel sums up kind of what Jesus did and taught. And then we kind of have this 40-day period after the, uh, the resurrection where Jesus is kind of popping in and out. It's kind of a crazy time. He'll just show up in rooms with the disciples and walk through walls. And we don't fully understand it, but he's teaching them and preparing them to kind of take the mantle of the church. So we're kind of in this section, Luke's explaining this to the Theophilus, and he explains that um, the instructions that Jesus gave his disciples during this 40-day period came through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you'll see the Holy Spirit several times in our passage today. I'll make a few comments on the Holy Spirit, but next week we're gonna devote almost our entire message to the Holy Spirit. So we're not gonna go deep into Holy Spirit theology today. We're gonna punt to next week because that's what's called Pentecost passage, and we'll dive deeply there. But suffice it to say, as we look at being on mission, There is no possible feasible way the church can be the church without the power of the Holy Spirit. Or you can follow Jesus without the power of the Holy Spirit. So just mark that from the get-go. We'll see that theme throughout Acts. And there's too many followers of Jesus, too many churches attempting to do the work of God in their own strength. And it will always, always fail and lead to bad things. So we need the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that uh, next week. So Luke tells Theophilus, Jesus gave them, this is the exact line, many convincing proofs that he was alive. So as every writer in the New Testament does, Luke sticks a flag in the resurrection. Paul does this demonstrably saying, if the resurrection is not true, we're idiots. We're the most foolish people on planet Earth. So all the writers in the New Testament say, everything is dependent on Jesus rising from the grave. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, It's all a complete joke. Walk away, go eat, drink, and be merry. Or do whatever you want with your life. So Luke is saying the same thing. He's like, Theophilus, everything is depending. And during this 40-day period, Luke says, Jesus gave many convincing proofs. I heard a quote the other day that's kind of lingered with me. And this person said, I'm not a pessimist. And I'm not an optimist. Jesus is risen from the dead. And I like that. And what he's saying is like, I'm not going to ride the waves of history or the news or how things are going up and down. Not that we're unaware of those things. There's a higher reality. That King Jesus is risen from the dead. And King Jesus will make all things right. And as we follow, we jump up above the ebbs and the flows of daily life. And Luke is reminding Theophilus of that. He also says, he notes that Jesus ate with the disciples... You may uh, come across people who say, and you say, hey, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And they're like, yes, spiritually. I believe like there's a spiritual sense that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, they can believe that, and that's totally fine. Everyone's free to believe what they want. That's not Christianity. That's not Orthodox Christianity. Orthodox Christianity is built, the creeds are built on this idea that Jesus bodily rose from the grave. And Luke is really clear on that because he's like, Jesus ate with them several times. You don't eat with ghosts. Now, if you're eating with ghosts, come talk to me after the service because there's other issues going on in your life. So Luke says, Theophilus, uh, you know, Jesus, we know that he was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. So that's the beginning of his ministry. And then here at the end, he has another 40-day period in Jewish literature. 40 days was the time that you would prepare for something big. So that would, if you're a Jewish reader, that 40 days would resonate. So in these 40 days, we're told that Jesus is teaching them. What is the main focus of his teaching? And this would be true throughout the Gospels as well. If you just ask a trivia question, what was Jesus' main topic in all of his teaching? The correct answer would be, Luke gives it to theophilus: the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. My my professor Scott, he, he writes a lot about the kingdom of God in another one of his books, Kingdom Conspiracy. Scott says, the kingdom message entails a king, the king's redemption and rule, the king's people, the king's ethics, and the kingdom's physical space. Acts is really talking about how the kingdom of God is beginning to come to earth. It's in breaking into earth through God's people, filled with his Holy Spirit, the church Inevitably making all things right. And one day Jesus will return and will fully finish that project. But we're in it now. Jesus is launching it. And he's preparing these young men and women. There was men and women together to carry forth the kingdom. So that was his main topic of conversation. As he's telling them this, and he tells them to go to Jerusalem. And wait there for the coming of the Holy Spirit next week. That's the passage we'll talk about. That's called Pentecost. Pentecost. They interrupt him, and they ask a question. They say, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? We'll get into more of this later. They still don't get it. They still don't fully understand what the kingdom of God is and their role in it. They're thinking through the lens of themselves. They want to know what's in it for them. They they want to know, when's this all going to happen? When do we get to sit on our thrones and rule with you, Jesus? And Jesus kind of sidesteps their question. They're they're talking about the kingdom in the future, which is a misnomer I think many modern followers of Jesus fall for. They're like, when the kingdom comes and Jesus redirects them, he's like, no, 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 it's here. It's here. It's here right now. Interesting side point, if you go back to Luke 22, you may remember the Passover meal. Jesus says to them, I will not eat with you again in person until the kingdom comes. Do you remember that? I will not eat with you again until the kingdom comes. What is Luke telling us in Acts Jesus is doing with them? He's eating with them. <laughs> I don't know if they put it together, but they're thinking about it. in the future, when you come and just, you know, Jesus is like, no, 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 you don't get it. It's now. It's now. It's here. We're eating together. And you're invited into the party with me to help me live out the kingdom mission. So Jesus then, he, he, he's interrupted, he gets back on topic, and he gives this verse in Acts 1.8. So if you're, if you're an underliner, if you like to write in your Bibles, this is the theme for Acts. And these are the last words Jesus says uh, to his disciples. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Again, the mission is not fueled by human ingenuity and might. It's a big mistake the church makes. It's fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, as you're filled with my Holy Spirit, you will become, look down in the text, what? You will become witnesses. Witnesses. I would define a witness as someone who testifies to their own experience to substantiate reality. Someone who... Testifies to their own experience to substantiate reality. That's what the Holy Spirit will do in us. We will become witnesses of Jesus. We will substantiate the reality of kingdom come by how we live our lives. It's a huge theme in Acts. This word witness in the Greek is used 35 times in the New Testament. 13 of those are in the book of Acts. So Jesus was the first witness to the kingdom. Now he's handing the mantle to this group so that they may extend the witness to the ends of the earth. He says that they will be witnesses, and we're kind of, I know you're probably not familiar with ancient geography, but he's extending it out. So think of the map. He sends them to Jerusalem. So he says, You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, that's the area that surrounded Jerusalem. And then in Samaria, that was right outside Judea, and included their enemies. And it's very noteworthy because most Jewish people thought of Samaritans as half-breeds, as uh, that God was, was hated them, that they were the enemies. Of the so that Jesus includes this in the mission as telling. And then he says, and to the ends of the earth. As we walk through Acts, this verse not only is the theme, but is the geographical template. We will start in Jerusalem. And then the, the kingdom will spread out to Judea, and then it will spread into Samaria, and by the end, it will spread to the ends of the earth. If you're reading this and you're hearing this in Luke's time, the ends of the earth for you would have been like modern-day Spain. That's as far as they could conceive. We know, as we're reading it now, that literally the Spirit of God is saying, to the very ends of the earth. So this is not a big reveal like Jesus is coming in later to the story and adding this new wrinkle that no one saw. We've talked about this a lot at New Hope. This is the heart of God from the very beginning, from Genesis all the way through, that God's kingdom would spread to the ends of the world to to make all things right. Uh, The prophet Isaiah says, and note the, the, the familiarity with the language. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. And that word Gentiles just means nations. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Luke is playing off that. They knew their Bibles really, really well. It's what my friend Tim calls a hyperlink. They would have immediately thought of Isaiah's words. And then in Acts 13, we'll get to this, where Peter is preaching. He quotes the same verse in Isaiah again. Uh, so this, is, this continues the theme that we see this line again and again in the scripture, that the kingdom of God will include persons from every language, nation, people, and tribe. That line's used seven times in the book of Revelation at the culmination of our story. All right, so then we go uh, to verses nine through 11, and this is what we refer to as Jesus's ascension. It's ascension. So Luke tells Theophilus that after Jesus gave them their mission in Acts 1-8, that he ascended. I assume he just kind of lifted up into the clouds. It must have been very disoriented. This is God's vindication that, that he is honored and pleased with the work of his son. Jesus. Not only Jesus rising from the dead, but he's being taken up into heaven. Heaven is not this ethereal kind of physical space per se. It's a realm, as Dallas Willard would say, where God's will is utterly unopposed. And that realm will one day fully invade earth and, 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 and make, its, make its home on earth again, heaven coming to earth. We're not there yet. So Jesus goes up into heaven and in the presence of God, we see a cloud, that cloud, as you think of the Israelites in the wilderness, a cloud by day and a fire by night, it's, it's synonymous with God's presence. So they would have understood that, that Jesus is being taken up into God's presence, into heaven. Uh, and then Luke tells Theophilus, and one day Jesus will return. And then we get really excited as modern Christians. We love this end time stuff. I don't know if you do. We love that stuff. And here's my, here's my 10 second uh, end times course. Um, I'm going to give it to you for free. It's usually $9.99. But uh, it's this Jesus is going to return. We don't know when. Get busy. That's it. That's that's it. So that's that's about the teaching we'll have on the end times. No, we'll do Revelation sometimes stuff like that. But this is what he's saying: like, yeah, Jesus is going to return one day as king. No one knows. Like, if you run into anybody, just this is an aside. This is free. If you run into anybody, preacher, teacher that tells you and predicts when Jesus is coming, they're being unfaithful to the to the scriptures. (laughs) Jesus says, like, no one knows. No one knows. And we can't seem to get that through our thick skulls. Uh, so, there are, they, if you're a Jewish audience, would have also thought of this ascension with the prophet Elijah. If you're familiar with your, your Hebrew scriptures, the prophet Elijah also got taken up into the clouds and hands over the mantle to the prophet Elisha. In this instance, Jesus is being taken up and he's handing the mantle to his ragtag crew of disciples. Uh, there's some symmetry there. All right, so let's, uh, let's reenact this scene for a second. Let's act like we're there, all right, and Jesus is with us, and then Jesus ascends. So I want everybody, I want full participation, everybody to look up to the ceiling, all right? Everybody. Somebody's not doing it, so come on. Everybody look up. So you, picture this, and they're standing there. I mean, there's probably 50, 60 of them, maybe more, and they're like, is this a trick? Where did he go? Does anybody see him? I think that's him over there. No, that's just like a Jesus-shaped cloud. That's not him. And so they're like, I don't know how long. Keep staring up. I don't know how long they did this. They're just staring. It could be a long time. They're they're genuinely perplexed. They don't know really what's going on. Jesus hasn't prepared them for this. And then we're told two two angels appear, the best we can tell. And essentially the the angels say, what are you doing? (laughs) You can look back down. They're like... What, what are you guys doing? Like, he just spent 40 days telling you all this. Like, you guys are so slow. Like, I, that's how I interpret it. Like, read it. That's what he's saying. Like, he's, it says it in churchy, like, Bible language. But that's essentially what he's saying. What are you doing? Stop staring at the sky. The Holy Spirit's coming. Get to Jerusalem. The kingdom is coming. And you're invited into it. Right now. Let's go. And I've just noted... And I I put myself in this category. I'm not trying to be judgy. I think the modern American church, we have a tendency to do this. Don't. Like, we just, we want to check out. The world's like a dumpster fire. Like, just get me out of here, Jesus. I don't want to get my hands dirty. Like, just come. I want to go to heaven, whatever that means. Just come. And I think there's good things about that. um, But there's really detrimental things about that. Because we're called to mission. This is our time. Life's short. We'll have all of eternity with Jesus and one another. This is it. This is our time. This is our time to participate through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we spend so much of our time doing this when there's mayhem around us where we could be the body of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. To bring goodness to the world. For the sake of the world. For the glory of God. So I think in always, I love this passage. Because I think it's true for us too. It's like get busy. All right. So what? So, so we made some nice comments and color commentary on the text there, so what? If we're just like, thanks be to God, and we pray and go home, like I, that's not how we're supposed to live, so so what? So these are things that, that I glean, you may glean other things, I, please share them with me if you see different things. I would say like this, uh, we were made for mission, what is our mission? I, I, I would say as followers of Jesus, if you consider yourself one, it's this. It's Acts 1-8, this is it, this is the last thing Jesus said, this is our mission. And I shorten it, I would say our mission is to bear witness to Jesus. Our mission when we get out of bed every day is to bear witness to Jesus. When, you, when somebody crosses your path at school or at work or in the community, how you interact with them, how you treat them, how you deal with your money and your time and your affections. Do people smell Jesus in that? Are people like, that, what's going on there? That's different, that's captivating. What is that like? I mean, it's a convicting question. I would say, for me, no a lot of times, honestly. But that's our mission. That's what we're called to. Are we bearing witness to the life and light of Jesus? So as Mike said earlier, we've taken that at New Hope and as our, our community here, our mission statement is to follow Jesus and share his love. So I thought since we're talking about mission, we're launching a new series, kind of the fall season. Let's talk about that mission statement for a minute. Maybe you're really involved here. You're all in. Maybe you're like, I don't know if I'm all in. This is my first time or whatever. So this is our mission statement. Like our church leadership, our elders, when we think about are we being faithful, we line it up with whether we're doing this, to follow Jesus and share his love. So there's two parts here, and they're interconnected. The first part is we seek to follow Jesus. This is the most basic call Jesus gave to his disciples in all four of the Gospels. Follow me. That's what he said again and again and again. The gap we have in language, we read into that, and we have our own definition of follow. So when we hear Jesus say that, we think it might mean maybe like just following after someone. Like if you're going to a party and someone's like, I know how to get there. I'll go ahead in my car, you follow after me. That's how we think about it. Not really what Jesus is saying. You may, you may go dark and think like, like a stalking kind of thing. That's an aspect of following. Nope, that's not what it is either. We may also think social media, that we have followers. Jesus doesn't want you to follow him on Twitter. That's, it's not, that's not what it is. It's not what the word. So the word is deeply rooted in this idea of Jesus being a rabbi. So rabbis, first century rabbis, would collect a group of young men, because it was a very patriarchal society, but Jesus also had many women that followed with him. And they would follow him, but that doesn't mean they just trail behind him awkwardly, stalking Jesus. No, he invited them into fully doing life with him. And Jesus showed them what it looked like to be a witness. It showed them what it looked like to be fully human, Because they had forgotten and been broken by sin. And so it also has the idea of an apprentice. That was a very uh, relevant idea in the first century. So you would have a trade, probably the same trade your father did or your grandfather did. We think Jesus was a carpenter or a stonemason. Some recent scholarly work argues that he was a stonemason. He did something with his hands to construct things. So when you're starting out in that and you're an apprentice... You come along, and this person's like, okay, like this is how you build a chair or frame a wall. And they give that person a chance. Nope, nope, that's not how you do it. They get in and do it. This. Nope, nope, that's not how you do it. Do it this. So the idea of following is to do exactly what that person's doing. There was a, a movement when I was a teen uh, where everybody wore these bracelets that had WWJD. Anybody had one of those bracelets? Come on. Yeah, see? Like, w. And it quickly got pretty lame. Christians do kind of a lot of lame things. It got got this weird pop culture thing going on. It came from this novel by Charles Sheldon called In His Steps. And it's a fictional novel, but it's about a pastor who, he went through something, I can't remember what, but he determined, starting on a certain day, that he was going to just do exactly what Jesus said, always. And it's how it changed his life and his family and the community. Um, There can be a legalistic aspect to it. That's why we got to realize we do it under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But it very much approximates here what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. He's like, just come and live life like I'm living life. And we're deeply devoted to that around here in New Hope. We don't always do it well. I don't always do it well. But that's the kind of community we want to be. What would Jesus do? By the power of the Holy Spirit, let's do it. And there's a radicalness to it that I wrestle with in my spirit that you see in the New Testament. In Luke 5, when Jesus calls the fishermen, there's this line that haunts me at the end. And it says, when he called them, they left everything and followed him, including the massive catch that was worth a lot of money. They left it on the shore. And then you think of Matthew that literally got up from his tax booth, defying the Romans (laughs) and left a lucrative industry to follow Jesus. There's Paul, who was the up-and-coming rabbi. He studied in the top mind. He was persecuting Christians, and he encountered Jesus in such a life-altering way that he left everything. He, He switched teams. Boom! There is this radicalness to following Jesus that I don't always see in my own life, that I don't always see in modern Christians, that is absolutely there, that we're endeavoring to create here in New Hope. We wanna be a community that we lay it all out. My first sermon at New Hope seven years ago in the old building, imagine that, a lot of pressure, I was field pressure, I, I took a big risk and uh, my main metaphor for that sermon was a poker illustration. That's a risk, coming into a church and your first pastoral metaphor is a poker illustration. I don't really play poker, I, you know. don't ask me to, I, I'm not good at it. But some of you may know it, and, and, and you know this analogy, even if you don't play poker, the idea of going all in. We all know what that means. Sometimes I watch late night the poker championships, I don't understand it, but I just think it's intriguing. <laughs> And right, when you think, you know, it's, it's a play. It's like you got your chips and you move them in. And I was watching this of last year. And when you do that, the crowd, there is a crowd. These people think, they go nuts. They go wild because they understand how, how important this is. This is it. The person doesn't win the hand. They're out. And I think a lot of Christians, including myself, we kind of put in a few chips to the following Jesus thing. Yeah, I just, I'll throw a few in there. I'll keep some right here too. Following Jesus is going all in. It's scary, <laughs> but I'm convinced that's where life is. So that's the first part of our, of our vision here. Uh, Eugene Peterson in Luke 14, says it like this. Simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you cannot be my disciple. If we're doing that, if by the power of the Holy Spirit we're truly following Jesus around here as a community, then we will naturally share his love. It won't be an effort. We're not efforting his love. If we're following Jesus, it will flow out of us. John 13, 35 says, By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. How's that going? When people think of followers of Jesus in America, what do they think about? Don't answer that. It will be discouraging. (laughs) Do you think about love? Can you imagine the possibilities? Jesus summed up the entire Old Testament law by saying love God and love others. If we're bearing witness to Jesus, our lives will be utterly saturated with love. And my favorite definition of love is Thomas Aquinas. A love is willing the good of the other. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what kind of community we would be, church community? So we link arms with other community, church communities in the area that are doing this. What's New Hope's mission? Follow Jesus and share his love. This is our North Star here. This is the hill we die on. If you're looking for a church with all due respect, that's into kind of political stuff, if you want to like argue about like minute theological things, I'm fine to do that with you on the side. I like that kind of stuff. If you want that kind of church, that's not us. I'm just being honest with you. We're the kind of church that wants to come and go all in on Jesus, and we want to love others. Secondly, uh, this kind of jumped at me. I didn't uh, didn't expect to find this in the text. But did did you notice the disciples actually interrupted Jesus? Jesus is getting all geared up to give this big mission speech before he gets ascended. And they had the audacity to interrupt him. And ask the question, Lord, is that when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Make no mistake about it, this was a nationalistic question. These, to be fair, these Jewish men and, and women had been raised with the idea that God only cared about Israel. That God only cared about Jewish people. And when the kingdom came, it would only affect Jewish people. God help all the Gentiles and Samaritans. <laughs> That's how they, And it was wrong. And Jesus is correcting that. And he immediately corrects it when he gives them their mission. Saying, like, it's not only Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's all nations. You're to be a light to all nations for the glory of God. Lest we judge, sadly, nationalism is something we still struggle with. And I wanna talk about it just for a second. Uh, It's important that we define terms, and I'm gonna actually read some of my notes here, because some of the things I'm gonna say might rattle a few of you. And when you send me the angry email, just make sure you're precise in what you're saying. I'll I'll cut and paste this, say, no, I read that. That's not what I said. All right, nationalism is when we uh, Identify with and support our own nation to the exclusion of other nations. All right? Nationalism is when we identify with and support our own nation to the exclusion of other nations. Nationalism is different than patriotism. Please hear that. Patriotism is love of country. Every follower of Jesus should be a radical patriot for their country. We're called to love the place we're in. You just USA, we should, I mean, I, World Cup, I'm all in. Let's do it. It's awesome. We should be patriots. The flags, Fourth of July, it's awesome. Be a patriot. Love your country. That's what God calls us to do as followers of Jesus, but not to the exclusion of other countries. Nationalism is the love of country to the exclusion of others. Nationalism is loving our country in a way that is unloving to other nations. Nationalism leads to xenophobia, that's a Greek word, meaning fear of strangers, instead of what we're called to, hospitality, which means, is another Greek word, love of strangers. What is Christian nationalism? You may have heard that term, and there's confusion and all that, and I'm your pastor, it's it's my job to talk to you about these things and to warn you about these things. Christian nationalism is an ideology that idealizes and advocates a fusion Of Christianity with American civic belonging and participation. That's from two sociologists from Baylor. Simply put, Christian nationalism blurs any distinction between your Christian identity and your American identity. In doing so, it distorts and deforms both of those identities. It makes you less of a good American and less of a good Christian. Christian nationalism is equating being a Christian with being an American... ...and being an American with being a Christian. It infers that supporting Christianity is to support America... ...and to support America is to support Christianity. It's the very thing the disciples were doing with Israel. And it's not just America. Tons of countries do this. Just fill in the country. You can do it with any country. It's not just America. There's nothing wrong with supporting America. Please hear this before you write me the email. There's nothing wrong with supporting Christianity, obviously... But to put American and Christianity in some kind of weird codependent relationship will destroy both of them, as all codependent relationships do. As followers of Jesus, please hear this. We should be patriotic. We should love our country fiercely. We should be grateful for our country. As Jeremiah told the Jewish exiles in Babylon, he told them, love Babylon Build gardens, have children, do good, help Babylon flourish, because if they flourish, you are flourish. That's true for America. We should do that as followers of Jesus. But hear this, the kingdom of God is not just about America. The kingdom of God, which is self-evident in this text, is about bringing the light of God to every nation on earth. When we support our nation to the exclusion of other nations, we are operating in opposition to the mission of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we are called to bear witness uh, to not the greatness of our particular nation, but the greatness of the kingdom of God that includes all nations. Christian nationalism is a form of idolatry that worships a God attached to our nation instead of the God of all nations. I would say it like this, if you don't remember anything else. I would say Christian nationalism, like Jewish nationalism or Russian nationalism or whatever, it's an it's a oxymoron. An oxymoron is putting two things together that don't fit, like jumbo shrimp. That's what Christian nationalism is, right? It doesn't fit together. To be nationalistic is to be for one nation alone. To be a follower of Jesus is to be for all nations. It's biblical and godly to be patriotic, to love our country, to seek its flourishing. It's not biblical and it's ungodly to seek the flourishing of our country to the exclusion of other nations. Our primary citizenship and greatest allegiance should be to the kingdom of God. My, uh, my pastor, uh, who I call him my pastor, I never met him. I, I'll tell this story another time. I got to spend some time at his house recently. Eugene Peterson has shaped me deeply as a pastor. I came across this quote a year or two ago. It's just haunted me, so I wanna, I wanna read it to you. He says, the popular religious practice in our culture is to cross-fertilize American with Christian and come up with a hybrid. In botany and animal husbandry, hybridization is practiced by grafting or crossbreeding to bring out the best in both species, like hybrid corn or hybrid sheep, for example. But if you don't know what you're doing, no matter how well intentioned you may be, you can end up with something that is worse than either on its own, a mongrel. The Latin hybrida literally translated as just that, a mongrel, the offspring of a tame sow and a wild boar. When the wild boar of American ambition is bred with a tame Christianity with no cross, the result is mongrel spirituality. A Christian with both the image of God and the crucified Savior lost in the cross breeding. All right, how are we doing? Who's angry at me? All right. This <laughs> like, be gentle. Be gentle when you yell, you know, later. Um, I, you know, I, I got to be faithful to be your pastor. It's my job to like, I don't have the corner on the truth, but like I also, when I see it in the text, I, it's my job to call you on it. You may not like it, but that's okay. I'll, I'm, I'm a big boy. Last, last kind of uh, point here that I saw in the text goes back to this great reversal idea. Jesus is always great reversing. I love that about him. We see it in the text. We'll see it through Acts. We'll point it out. But it goes back to the interruption again. And these disciples, these young men and women who interrupted Jesus, when they asked that question, they had an agenda. We know that because we go back into Luke's Gospel, Luke 9, Luke 22, you look at the other Gospels. They were forever arguing about who the greatest was. You notice that? Forever arguing. Who gets to sit at your right and left? Those are seats of power. They had had this vision that they were going to get authority and they were going to be lifted high. And Jesus is always trying to tell them, in my kingdom, the last shall be first. The least shall be the greatest. To, to gain your life, you have to lose your life. They had the, in Luke 22, they had that argument right after Jesus washed their feet. Right before he's going to the cross. Can you believe it? Except we would do the same thing, probably. And they're sitting there right after this happens. And Jesus is trying to teach them and prepare them for the kingdom. And they're like, so Jesus, you know, when the kingdom comes... You know, I'm not really interested, but Peter was wondering... Where we get to sit in the kingdom? They're still on that same thing here. I mean, he, he rose from the grave. He's taught him for 40 days on the kingdom. They're still on the same thing. Here's the, enc- the encouraging thing, because I get discouraged. Uh, they'll get it. They'll get it. The Greek word for witness is the same word we use for martyr. Isn't that interesting? Jesus like, as you're filled with my spirit, it's not about your thrones and your kingdom and being lifted high. I'm calling you to give everything, maybe even your life, to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the world. And they, uh, they got it. It so encourages me. History and tradition hold that 11 out of the 12 disciples died as martyrs. Isn't that incredible? From where we are at Acts to the end. Peter bore witness all over the Roman world and was crucified by Nero. James, son of Zebedee, was executed by Herod. We'll see that in Acts 12. Andrew bore witness in what is now Soviet Union, Asia Minor, Turkey, and he was crucified in Greece. Thomas uh, bore witness in East Asia and India. He was pierced with spears in India. Philip bore witness in Asia Minor and North Africa. He was killed in North Africa. Matthew bore witness in Persia and Ethiopia. He was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew bore witness in India and Armenia and Ethiopia and southern Arabia, he was martyred for his faith. James, son of Alphaeus, bore witness in Syria, he was stoned and clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot bore witness in Persia, he was killed after refusing the sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias, the disciple that was added late to the mix, he bore witness in Syria and he was burned to death. John, he was the only of the original disciples we know that wasn't martyred. He bore witness throughout the Roman Empire. He escaped unscathed from burning oil in Rome to be exiled to the island of Patmos where he died of natural causes. Additionally, we know Paul bore witness throughout the Roman Empire. He was beheaded by Nero. James, the brother of Jesus, who came to faith late. (laughs) When Jesus was risen from the dead, he was stoned by the high priest Ananias. John the Baptist was beheaded. Stephen was stoned to death. What does this tell us? That they got it. They understood as the Holy Spirit had its way with them. They, they got to the point where they stopped talking about thrones and their own honor, and they became witnesses. They not only gave their lives largely, but did you see where they were when they gave their lives? They took it to the ends of the world. That gives me great hope for my broken heart <laughs> and my insepid faith sometimes. It should give us great heart. It's, it's going on today. 13 Christians are martyred every day for their faith. 400 a month, nearly 5,000 a year. The numbers are probably much, much higher because we don't have verifiable stats from the most persecuted countries. The top four are Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, and Libya. In almost every country where Christians are persecuted, it's on the rise. We're called to pray for them. We're going to do that in just a second. When I was in seminary, uh, I I would go uh, regularly to a black church in town I didn't grow up in an area that had an opportunity to go to black church, so I wanted to learn how people did church differently. And I learned quickly in black church that you had to double the time for the service. It was like usually two hours. There was lots of singing and dancing, and uh, that you better be hungry, because they're gonna have a potluck or you'll get invited to like eight people's house for lunch. And then I also learned that they talked back to the pastor, which I personally like. In white church, if you start talking back to the pastor, they call security. But in black church, it's like the movement of the Holy Spirit, right? It's like, it's, I loved it. And so, one of the call and responses, that's what they call it in black church, that they would do often is, can I get a witness? 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 What's our mission? What's Jesus saying to us? I think he's saying just that. I think he's saying to each of us and to those of us collectively, can I get a witness? as I've wrestled with the role of race and the church and all those things, all of us, I've been reading a lot, and I've been so deeply moved by our black brothers and sisters in this country. If you haven't read much on that, just go read their stories. Hundreds of years of slavery, Jim Crow laws, and almost every step of the way in the civil rights movement was led by godly men and women, followers of Jesus, pastors, who despite all the persecution and the hatred and the violence and the death, chose the way of Jesus, and chose the way of love. They bore witness. They bore witness. And we should pay them honor for that. One of those is John Lewis. He was a 17-term congressman. And I think there's a picture coming up of young John Lewis. What does bearing witness look like? It looks like that. On our knees as people beat us. I see see the church today, like so many of my brothers and sisters, freaking out, losing their minds because they think the church is losing power. For one, I would be like, it's not your power that's going to win the day anyway. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to look at our brothers and sisters who have borne witness dealing with way worse things than us to proclaim the gospel in word and deed. John Lewis, he passed away in 2020. He says this, In preparing for the sit-ins, we felt that the message was one of love. The message of love and action. Don't hate. Someone hits you, don't strike back. Just turn to the other side and be prepared to forgive. That's not anything any constitution says. Anything about forgiveness is straight from Scripture. I want us to take a a, a couple minutes here as we we get ready to come to the Lord's table to pray. We want to be praying more in our gatherings. And uh, in... Let me teach you something that's just right there in the text today that maybe you can carry into your daily lives. So if you're willing and able uh, to close your eyes and kind of get yourself centered on the Lord, I want us to pray out geographically. I think this is an effective way to pray because this is the Lord's last words. And I want to uh, just give us like 30 seconds on each of those things. And uh, first is, is our Jerusalem, which is our city. Our city, uh, I don't have to tell you, it's been a tough stretch. Driving up the, the lane here, on the way here, I, God was convicted me the other day. I, I sometimes get annoyed driving past all those RVs, to be honest. And God convicted me. He's like, are you praying for them? Are you praying? <laughs> our city, are we praying? Are we on our knees for our city that is beautiful and loved by God? And God wants to be beautiful again. So let's, uh, however you're led, just 30 seconds, let's pray for our city. Our Judea is is our nation, our country. I'm I'm grateful to be an American, grateful for the liberties we have and the freedom we have, the cost that was paid to get us there. There's so many beautiful and good things about our country, and there's many dark things, there's many hard things, there's many broken things, as we're all aware of. So as you're led, um, we're called to pray for our country, we're called to pray for our, our political leaders of whatever party. We're told to that. That's biblical. So let's, uh, as led by the Spirit of God, let's pray for our nation. Then Jesus says, uh, You're going to take the gospel to Severia. I'm sure there's a lot of eye rolling going on when he said that. And uh, that was their enemy, their bitter enemy. And uh, as followers of Jesus, uh, we're called to love our enemies. No one ever said that before Jesus, ever. Uh, Who's your enemy? Maybe you're like, I don't have enemies. Who do you not like? How about that? (laughs) Who do you struggle with as a human? Maybe it's somebody at work, maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody on social media you don't even know. Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe if you're a Republican, it's Democrats. And if you're a Democrat, it's Republicans. I don't know what your journey's like. But who is that? You can't imagine the grace of God's going to forgive that person. Let's pray for them. Finally, let's pray for the world. Of course, uh, Ukraine, I mentioned the four most persecuted countries, uh, Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, there's many others. There's also stories like in the church in Iran as the fastest growing church in the world. The spirit of God is bringing revival all over the world. And we're called to pray for our brothers and sisters who are literally, when they decide to follow Jesus, they are giving up everything, uh, some of them even their lives. Uh, let's pray as led for the world right now. God, thanks for hearing our prayers. Uh, we pray, "Come, Lord Jesus." That's the most ancient of prayers. But when we don't pray, "Come, Lord Jesus," is in a, with an escapism sense. We don't want you to like haul us out of here. We want you to enter us and inflame our minds and our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Come into your church. Come into this church and change us for the glory of God and the sake of the world. We pray this in your matchless name and all God's people said.